And I'll ask you to take your Bibles with me today and turn to Matthew chapter 13. We're going to continue looking at some of the parables of Jesus today. Uh, It's a bit of a sermon series now. We began looking at parables a little while ago when we finished our study of the book of Daniel. And I don't think it's been a bad reminder to continue to work through some of the parables of Jesus. Today we're going to work through a parable called the parable of the weeds. Um, Some people might know it as the parable of the wheat and the tares, tares are weeds, Um, they're not wheat, Uh, it's not the good stuff, it's the bad stuff that grows when you plant things. We're going to begin reading in Matthew chapter 13, verse 24, Matthew 13, 24, I hope that you'll read along with me as we go. Here's Jesus speaking, another parable he put forth to them saying, the kingdom of heaven is like a man who sowed good seed in his field. But while men slept, his enemy came and sowed tares among the wheat and went his way. But when the grain had sprouted and produced a crop, then the tares also appeared. So the servants of the owner came and said to him, Sir, did you not sow good seed in your field? How then does it have tares? He said to them, An enemy has done this. The servant said to him, Do you want us to go then and gather them up? But he said to them, No, lest while you gather up the tares, you also uproot the wheat with them. Let both grow together until the harvest. And at the time of the harvest, I will say to the reapers, First gather together the tares and bind them in bundles to burn them, but gather the wheat into my barn." Okay, that's the parable. Now, to get the explanation of the parable, and I'm glad we have an explanation of the parable, we have to skip ahead to verse 36, because Jesus is speaking in public as he tells this story. But then in verse 36, his disciples ask him privately what this is all about, and he gives them a very straightforward answer. Uh, So there's no interpretive challenge for us in trying to decide what this means. I don't know about you, I'm very thankful that Jesus makes it very clear. We can read now in verse 36. Then Jesus sent the multitude away and went into the house, and his disciples came to him saying, Explain to us the parable of the tares of the field. He answered and said to them, He who sows the good seed is the Son of Man. Now, this is the first part of the puzzle for us in this particular parable. Jesus is the one planting. He is the one sowing the good seed. I don't know that, that captures my attention. I don't know if it does for you. But when Jesus positions himself into a story, I take note of it. My, my attention is kind of peaked a little bit. This is not a story about a farmer or one Christian here and another Christian there. This is a story about the Lord. If you will, if you see it this way, it's a bit of his perspective of things that are happening on the earth. He is the one planting his crops. And in the story, Jesus is the sower. Verse 38 continues, the field is the world. The good seeds are the sons of the kingdom, but the tares are the sons of the wicked one. All right. Jesus says the field is the world, good seeds are are the sons of the kingdom. We take that to mean the children of God, people who are Christians, people who are saved, people who are of God. The tares, the the weeds, are the sons of the wicked one. It doesn't mean that they're, you know, uh, doing uh, demonic worship in their their bedroom with, you know, uh, diadems and things like that. No, they're just, they're unbelievers. 
Um, they are they're following after the prince of the power of the air, doing what seems right to them. They are sons of the world, sons of the wicked one. Verse 39, the enemy who sowed them, here's the enemy then, the enemy who sowed them, uh, the bad seed here, is the devil. The harvest is the end of the age. The reapers are the angels. It's very nice of the Lord to lay it all out for us so neatly. We don't need to spend time trying to figure out who's what and where and when. Before we read verses 40 through 43, let's take all the puzzle pieces together here and let's review the parable we've just been told. Part one, Jesus goes out into the world. This is called the field. And he plants his people, sons of the kingdom, in the world. And the expectation is that... These people will grow and bear fruit to the Lord. When you plant something, you plant it with the expectation that it's going to grow, that it's going to multiply. You don't plant a single, you know, green bean seed in the ground and hope that at the end of all of the time and the effort, you reap a single green bean. That's not what you do. Anybody who's planting that way is wasting their time. You plant a single green bean seed into the ground so that it grows a plant, and you can pick all kinds of beans from it. And that's the idea here. Jesus has planted his own people, kingdom people, Christian people, into the world, and he expects growth. He expects good things to come. He expects spiritual growth inside of them, and he expects a sort of multiplication of of what the, 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 the good works are in their life. He expects something profitable to happen. Now, what kind of people are these sons of the kingdom? Well, they are all kinds of people. They are very diverse, very diverse. They don't all come from the same race. They don't all come from the same background. They don't all come from the same upbringing. Jesus' sons of the kingdom are a diverse people. They would have to be, right? Because he's planted them all over the world. I mean, the world is the soil. So it had to be a very diverse group. Even in a small place like the one we're gathered in together today, we may have a lot of physical commonalities, but just think about the diversity of background, the diversity of life, the diversity of religion and family that we come from, the economical backgrounds that we come from, the educational backgrounds that we come from, professional backgrounds that we come from. We are a diverse people, far more diverse than we are in common. So the sons of the kingdom are very diverse, and that makes sense when you think about Jesus having people all over the world. In fact, they are so diverse, Christian people are so diverse, that the only way they can be collectively identified is by the phrase, sons of the kingdom. That's what they share in common. That is the one thing that we have in common with other Christians. We belong to God's kingdom. We are His. We are united then in God's purpose whatever the agenda is of god's kingdom we are united in that agenda we live as followers of jesus because remember it is a kingdom it is not a democracy everyone is not free to do whatever they want it is a kingdom there is a king and as sons of the kingdom our agenda follows the agenda of the king If you are a Christian, you have been planted, if you will. You have been placed, if you will, in the life that you are living with a purpose. You have been sown to the ground into a fallen world, into a suffering world, into an unsaved world, 
into a perishing world. You have been put where you are for a purpose. And there is an expectation from Jesus that you will bear fruit unto the Lord. Wherever he is planning. Yeah, some people, oh, if only my life looked over here very different than it is, then I could bear fruit to the Lord. If God had just planted me in the soil over there, if I would have just been exposed to better things here, then I could have borne a lot more fruit to the Lord. No, no, you are in the place that you are in according to the Lord Jesus' work and desire, and the expectation is that in the place that you are in, you will bear fruit unto the Lord. When you became a Christian, you received new spiritual life. And when that happened, it's as if God himself planted you into the ground anew. That's part one. Part two, we find that the devil has plans to prevent a good harvest for God. He wants to, if we will, mess things up. That's what he wants to do. And we might wonder how. There might be a lot of ways to do this in a farming analogy. Maybe he just wants to kill the plants that are in the ground. Maybe he wants to try to starve them out and make them the poorest, you know, most miserable looking. But we're told specifically in this passage what Satan's design is. It says he has planted people of his own, which is, I don't know about you, uncomfortable for me to think about. But he hasn't implanted people of his own in and among the sons of the kingdom so that as these two different types of people grow together, they will not be easily distinguished from at the start so that Satan's people might sabotage the work of God in the growth of the others. Now you might be hearing, says, I don't like the sound of that. I don't like all this talk. I don't want to think about Satan having people whether they know it or not. I don't want to think about this. And I understand. I don't like thinking like this either. But let's just be clear. This is not from Reggie. Okay? This is a parable of Jesus. We have to think about this. We have to consider it. In the story, it's not until the plants have grown for a little while that it becomes obvious that they are not from Jesus but are instead from this world, from Satan. And of course, by that time, it is too late to go ripping them out like weeds because they've rooted themselves in and among the same soil as the sons of the kingdom. This is what we read in verse 26. When the grain had sprouted and produced a crop, the tares also appeared. So the servants, who in this story, remember, are angels, came to the owner and said, Sir, did you not sow good seed in your field? How then does it have tares? You know, the angels are disturbed at what they see, or the servants in this passage, and he said to them, an enemy has done this, and they asked, should we pull these out? You want, to go, you want us to go forcefully remove these people from in and among your church? And Jesus says, no, don't do that. Don't rip them out. If you do that, if you go ripping bad stuff out, you're going to uproot something good too. And in verse 30, Jesus says, wait until the harvest. That's not how I tend my garden. It must have been very odd for Jesus' disciples to hear this instruction. This is not what you would presumably try to do. Let's go ripping them out, you know? Yeah, we might disturb some stuff that's out there, but we don't want weeds growing up. But that's not what God says. This is where the parable takes on a spiritual meaning here because at the harvest, he says, 
will go through and we will separate the good from the bad. Now, when I harvest stuff, I don't want to separate the good from the bad. I want to just harvest the good. I don't want there to be any bad. It takes a lot of work to do this separating of the good and the bad. But it's not a problem for God. It's not going to be difficult for him to separate the good and the bad. This is not an inconvenience. He says, let it grow as it grows. And at the harvest, we will separate. So part one, Jesus has planted his people around the world. Part two, Satan has placed unbelievers among real Christians in a form of imitation to mess things up. And part three, at the end of the age, when the Lord returns, the good and the bad will be separated. That last part is a tragedy. Here are people who have lived among God's people, presumably around God's word for most of their lives, and they have presented themselves as Christians. Perhaps they even believe themselves to be Christians, and these people in this parable are not. They're not. And if you look at verses 40 through 43, again, this is the tragedy of it. It says, therefore, as the tares are gathered and burned in the fire, so it will be at the end of this age. I, I burn weeds when I pick them out of my garden. I don't. Sometimes I'll put them in a trash bag, but sometimes I'll just have a fire going off to the side, and it's just easy. Just, just throw it into here as you, as you go, a wheelbarrow full or whatever it is that you've picked. They did the same thing in ancient times. Therefore, as the tares are gathered and burned in the fire, so it will be at the end of this age. The Son of Man will send out His angels. They will gather out of His kingdom all things that offend and those who practice lawlessness and will cast them into the furnace of fire. There will be wailing and gnashing of teeth. Then the righteous will shine forth as the sun in the kingdom of their Father. He who has ears to hear let him hear. Can you see Jesus' desire for us to pay attention at the end of the story? See the emphasis at the end? He who has ears. This is not just for Jesus' disciples. It's not just for a small group of people in the first century. This is a broad statement made by the Son of God. The, the, the earth so that we may know God. So that we may understand God. God has not created and then left us to our own devices to try to figure out who He is. No, He has spoken to us. He has sent His only Son to be among us. And this is what Jesus has said. And He's saying, look, anyone who has ears to hear what I'm saying, let him understand. And that makes sense because of the universality of what He's just said. A day of judgment when everyone will either go into the kingdom of God or be separated into it seems like the sort of thing that if God were to speak to us, that he would speak to us about. There are all kinds of things I, I would like if God would just speak to me about and make life clear. Like, should I do this thing? Or should I do this thing? Or how should I handle this situation? But God, when he speaks, speaks about the most important things. It's not to diminish the value of anything else that's going on in my life, but this is a message that he intends for us to hear. And... Someone might say, well, how do I know then if I am a son of the kingdom or a son of the wicked one? Because that, Jesus is, this is a challenging thing. How do I know? It says, those who practice lawlessness are the ones who will be cast out. There, there is a difference between being a Christian man or a Christian woman who fights against sin in his or her life and being an unbeliever 
or perhaps even a professing believer who knows what is wrong and just surrenders to living wickedly. There is a difference. There's a difference between the one who is fighting sin, who is wrestling against sin, who's dealing with spiritual things, and the one who just resigns themselves to the idea of, this is just who I am. There is a difference. And this is not a unique warning to the Bible. We receive this warning over and over and over again. For as much as God tells us that we're saved by faith, we receive the warning that those who are saved wrestle. They fight against sin. They fight against spiritual darkness. Here is Jesus concluding his most famous sermon in Matthew 7. Okay? His mo- you, everyone has heard of the Sermon on the Mount. They may not have a clue what's in it, but everyone has heard of the Sermon on the Mount. And in that same sermon where everyone loves it when Jesus says, love your neighbor as yourself. What a wonderful principle. The golden rule, so to speak. In that same sermon where Jesus is saying all of these seemingly wonderful grandfatherly wisdom kinds of things. Here's how he finishes the sermon. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven. Oh, that's what we're talking about in this parable, isn't it? Who goes into the kingdom of heaven? Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father in heaven. You almost get a sense of that, don't you? God has planted us in the ground. He expects us to produce. This is his will for our lives. And there are some who call Jesus Lord who are not producing and who in fact, as we go on to read, many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, haven't we prophesied in your name, cast out demons in your name, done many wonders in your name, and then I will declare to them, I never knew you, depart from me. And here's the same phrase, you who practice lawlessness. So we have to listen to Jesus here. And I know we're coming off a, a, a time of celebration and a time of joy, and this doesn't have to be joyless. I hope this is a joyful message for you. I mean, if you are not a believer, if you are not who you are supposed to be, it is a happy thing to become what you are supposed to be. That should be a happy thing. You're not dead yet. This is not bad news. Listen to the warning of Jesus here. You are not a Christian because you fight against sin. Fighting against sin does not save anybody. You can only be saved by faith in Jesus and what he has done to purchase your forgiveness. But if you are a Christian, you fight against sin. It is simply what Christians do. It is what they do. God has put that fight into our souls. God is dwelling with us and God Fights against sin. So it's not, oh, I'm going to be saved by dealing with all of my sin. You know, I'm, I'm going to go to the meetings and I'm going to deal with this and then I'm going to deal with this and then I'm going to do this and pretty soon I'll do all the right things and I can call myself a Christian. No, 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 no. You are a Christian only by trusting in what Jesus has done for you. That trusting that you are forgiven by what Christ has done, that you are saved that you have eternal life because of Jesus' resurrection. That's what makes someone a Christian. That's what legally deals with their sin. But when you have new life from God as a Christian, when your life is transformed by that faith, 
You become fundamentally a person who fights against sin because God is dwelling with you and God fights against sin. There are all kinds of analogies that I could use here and I wrote down a few of them that I'm not even going to reference. It's not a matter of how you become a Christian. It's a matter of what a Christian does. The identity of a believer wrestles with sin. Here is the Apostle Paul describing this very thing in 2 Timothy 4. He says, very plainly, I couldn't get simpler than this. I have fought the good fight. There has been a struggle. This life has not been easy. It has been like a fight, and I have fought it. I have finished the race. This has not been simple. This has not been basic. There were many times when I felt the urge to quit, but I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Finally, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will give to me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all who have loved His appearing. I think that 2024 would be a good year for the Lord to appear. I think it would be a good year for the Lord to appear. I thought the same thing about 2023, but I say it about 2024. It would be a good year for the Lord to appear. That's not a prediction. Okay, don't put that on Facebook. All right? I went to church this morning and my pastor said, Jesus was coming back. Don't do that. No, no, no. I don't have a mathematical equation or some Bible code that I've deciphered here, all right? I'm just saying 2024 would be a good year for me to see the Lord Jesus Christ. I will love the Lord's appearing. That's why this is a happy message for me. There is a sadness to it that there are some who when the Lord Jesus appears will not be happy. They will not love the Lord's appearing. That's not me. Praise God. I will love the Lord's appearing. Let me ask you this. If the Lord appears in 2024, what would that year be like for you? Can you say with Paul here that you are one of those who on the day of the Lord's Jesus return will receive a reward with all who have loved His appearing? Can you say that? This is, this is the, 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 you call it whatever you want, the invitation part of the sermon, the me pleading with you part of the sermon. The Lord has gone to great lengths through His Son to save you, to redeem your life, and to take you, little old you, little old you, and to create from you something that, as a farmer would plant a seed in the ground, can grow and blossom into something wonderful, something good, something fruitful, something eternal, something like, I don't know what your background is. Maybe you grew up and you just always thought, I'm one of the most special people in the world. Uh, you know, as much as my parents told me, you're so special, you're so special, you're so special, I knew that I wasn't. <laughs> I mean, that's just the truth. I'm just, you, you know, you, 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 you grow up in a small town like New Paris and a little village like this, and there's not that many people, and you go to school, and there's not that many people, and you're like, hey, uh, I'm a pretty fast runner for the people in this school, and you feel real good about yourself, and then, you know, you run some races, and you travel around, and you're like, those people are a lot faster than me, you know? I mean, I, I don't... 
I'm not that special. You're not that special. But God would have you be special. He's he's wanting to do something with your life far beyond whatever you're in pursuit of. I say this to my son who wakes up in the morning and dribbles a basketball. I say this to my son. He will never be a special basketball player. He's special to me. Special to me. But in the grand scheme of things, not special. That's just the truth of it. But God would do something special in the life of my son. Something far beyond whatever he could conceive of. I say this to my daughters who are at various stages in their life, getting married, pursuing college, just getting a driver's license, trying to figure out how to get their coat on in time for the rest of us when it's time to leave the house. You can figure out which daughter that is, right? I, but, they, you know, g- great worldly ambitions do not lie before them. They just don't. I mean... <laughs> I guess we could allow something amazing could happen, okay? But the point is, something amazing will happen if they trust Jesus Christ with their future. Something great will happen. Something profound will happen if they trust Jesus. So I don't know where you hear this message today. But there is no reason to hear a message like this and to go home in fear or doubt or concern. Where do I stand? Where am I? Who am I? What am I pursuing? Am I one of these tares that's spoken of here? There's no need for any of that. That's the joyful part of the message. It can all be settled. You place your faith in Jesus Christ. You ask God to dwell with you. And you take up the mantle of believer. You take up the mantle of disciple. You take up the mantle of follower. Whatever practical change that might mean, you probably, I mean, this is true for me, when you become a Christian, you probably don't even have the faintest clue where to start or what practical change that might mean. That's okay. Trust the Lord. Submit to the Lord. Learn from the Lord. He will show you. Now, very quickly, I'll make two points, and then we'll be done. I'm feeling very generous with the short sermons here recently, and I'm just banking up the minutes for the ones to come, maybe. (laughs) Jesus knows what's going on in your life. There's two points here. He knows what's actually going on. If you're a child or a teenager sitting here today, your parents may not know what's actually going on. There may be precious few adults who know what's actually going on in your life. May not have the slightest idea. Maybe there's some concern or maybe there's some suspicion. Or maybe they just think you're the greatest thing in the world. Jesus knows what's actually going on in your life. If you're a husband, a father, a worker, provider, the Lord knows what's actually going on in your life. There may be precious few other people in the world who know what's actually going on, but God knows. He is taking account. He knows if you're fighting sin or not. He knows if you're surrendering to the flesh or not. He knows whether if spiritually in your own heart you've kind of wiped your hands of the whole thing and said, this is who I am. 
which is the opposite of the Apostle Paul encouraging us. I have fought, I have run, I have finished, I am there. I don't think any amount of preaching could muster up something inside of you to finish this race of life. I don't think any amount of exhortation, and I don't mean to say, look, I would love to encourage you to do well. I would love to, 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 to pump wind into the sails here to keep you going, but, but truthfully, honestly, either you're a believer or you're not. If you're a believer, the Spirit of God propels you forward. Because I'm not there when you're wrestling with sin. I'm not in the middle of it. I'm not there when you're frustrated and angry and you don't know what to do next. I'm not there when you just want to quit. I'm not, I'm not there for any of that. If I'm there, I'll try to encourage you. If you call me, I will be there. If you text me, I will reply. But the Lord is there. The Lord is there. By faith, we need to ask that the Lord strengthen us in our inner being. This is Ephesians 3-ish talk so that we can be sanctified and we can fight with victory. And we can... but, but the Lord knows what's going on in your life. He knows the good, the bad, the fake, the real. The, if you are a, a tear, a weed in the field right now, and you profess the thing, and you look the thing, and you attempt to be known as the thing, but you know in your heart you are not the thing. You don't fight sin. It's not even on your priority list. You're not trying to fulfill God's purpose in your life. You've got agenda A, B, C, and D that you've lined up. Like, if you know you're not the thing, I don't know that you're not the thing. I don't have anyone in mind, but God knows. God knows. If you are being confronted with this message this morning on this Sunday, I would take that as divine providence that God would see you become the real thing. The second point to leave here with, God's people live with a sense of God's purpose. Now notice the word God is in there twice. It's not merely that God's people live with a sense of purpose. Is all the rage in coaching and life and philosophy and psychology. What's your purpose in life? What's your purpose in life? What's your purpose in life? No, 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 no. What is God's purpose in your life? Have you settled around that? I'm not asking you to provide me the answer for what God's purpose is over the course of the next 20 years. No, no, no. I don't even know how you could know that. What is God's purpose in your life right now? What is the Lord having you do right now? What are you supposed to be about Right now in your life. Don't tell me, well, I'm doing this so that someday I can retire and fulfill God's purpose. No, 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 that's a cop-out. And in my experience, someday often never comes. No, no. If retiring so that you can do something else down the road is in the cards, great. I don't have a problem with that. But what are you doing right now? What is God's purpose right now? Don't you think you should have some sense of that? Maybe you don't even think it's possible to have some sense of that. I tell you it is. It is. It's probably going to take some reflection. It's probably going to take some evaluation. It's probably going to take some thought. But let's not pretend. It's not like it's going to take two years of college to figure it out. It's not going to take you like six weeks to figure it out. You know what it's probably going to take you? It's probably going to take you... A really honest, sober day, day and a half to think about what's going on in your life right now. 
and ask, you know, what does God want to do with me? It's probably going to take you about 24 hours. And I praise the Lord for that. If the Spirit of God dwells with you, He's not going to keep this as some hidden answer, some secret agenda. Oh, keep looking, keep looking, keep Someday I'll show you what to do. That's not, no. Ask and you will receive. Knock and it will be opened to you. Seek and you will find. God, He's planted you where you are for a purpose. Most of the time, I think, this is not from the Bible, okay, but I think, when people struggle to find an answer to this problem, it's because they don't want the honest answer to this problem of what God wants them to do. They don't want it enough to really think about it and pursue it. They don't want it enough to be realistic. Like, I, I've talked to people, what, what do you think God wants me to, what do you think God wants me to do with my life? And they start saying things like, well, someday I would like to be a teacher, or someday I would like to do this. And that, those things may not be realistic right now. Don't you want to know what God wants you to do right now? And if you end up being a pastor or a teacher or a great-grandfather or adopting kids or whatever, if you end up doing all that stuff, great! But don't you want to find out what God's purpose is in your life right now? Because God's people live with a sense of God's purpose. And I don't think that that's unattainable. I don't think that that's some you know, ethereal idea that we just can't grasp. Nope, I don't believe that. I believe if you're a Christian, God has gifted you to serve Him and to honor Him. I believe that He will empower you to serve Him and to honor Him. And I believe you can know beyond a shadow of a doubt, I am living my life for the Lord Jesus Christ. This is what He is doing in me. This is what I am about right now. This is how I'm living I think that's a good thing to consider as we turn the calendar to a new year. Let's close with a word of prayer. Father, I, I'm very thankful for your word, um, for the way it's, it can speak directly to us, as opposed to beating around the bush for chapters on end. Uh, I'm, I thank, I'm thankful for your intention in Christ as he said these things, for your sovereignty in preserving them for us today, and just how intensely applicable they are to us 2,000 years later. I'm thankful that you didn't send Jesus to the world to tell fishermen in the first century how to fish. What sort of useless knowledge would that be to most of us today. I'm thankful that you sent your son into the world to tell us how we can live for the kingdom of God and enter the kingdom of God and not go to hell. Now, Father, I pray that everyone here today with ears to hear will consider these things and that they won't think of fulfilling your purpose in their lives as some future thing that they might someday pursue. Nor will they spend their lives telling themselves that they're a Christian because they do this and they're a Christian because they do this. But Father, that we'll know we're a Christian because there is a fight against spiritual evil in our lives. There is a never-surrender mentality to our approach with spiritual things. And there is a faithfulness that could not come from us but could only come from you, implanted in our very hearts. 
Help us to give well. Help us to end well in worship. Father, I thank you for your word. It's in Jesus' name that I pray. Amen.